black black What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. Well, once again, I am about to speak with somebody who was an ex-member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. And unlike most of my other guests, and especially the guest that has a subject matter that deals with abuse, um, this person is a man. And on top of uh, you know all of the stuff that we've heard from ex-members of the Plymouth Brethren, this person has so many awful and at the same time interesting stories that uh, that aren't dealing with abuse that it was impossible for me to to not have him on. Um, and he was going to be on a little bit earlier, but we did our we crossed our T's and dotted our I's and make sure that um, because he's going to be on today saying some, um, you know, making some allegations that have been backed up by police reports. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that he was able to have a voice as well. And so I would like to welcome to the show. Uh, his name is Lane Admiral. Lane, how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks, James. Um, Thanks for having me on. No, no problem. No problem. I'm, I wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in a way, it's almost it would be almost met better if I didn't meet all of the people that I've met over the last couple of months because I'm meeting you guys because of all the heinous shit that's happened to you because of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, a.k.a. the Plymouth Brethren Crazy Cult. Um with you, let's, let, can we start at the beginning? This is what I like to do with everybody. You, you, I'm assuming you were born into it, as most people were. Tell me what childhood was like, um, what it was like when you were really young, and what it was like to sort of be in that mindset of, of the cult. So, yeah, I was born into it in Winnipeg in 1990. And I knew nothing else, you know. It was just my life, just the way of life. My mom was from Montreal. My dad was born in Winnipeg. And uh, when we were, when I was four years old, 1994, they decided to move to Montreal. And uh, it was probably, I would say, a good childhood, like those those early early years. And then the, I'd say, the abuse started probably around ten years old. And mm-hmm. yeah, and it's still hard to talk about. So I'm sorry if I get a little emotional. No, please. And take your time. You know. Um, Yeah. So we went to church every day, right? Just drilling it into us. Um, And I discovered swear words pretty young. And it it was like magical as a kid. I could make these sounds out of my voice and my parents would explode. My mom would start crying. And I would say things against Jesus and Bruce Hales. And I would get beat for it so i think the first really bad one well first it was hot sauce and i would as soon as they were outside the house i'd steal all the hot sauce and smash it on the street so that fixed that one and then it was uh it was laundry detergent which my mom put a stop to because that's it was too bad um hold on so so they when you were out of line they used to douse your mouth with hot sauce 
yeah, he'd put if I swore or said something like against the church or I hate the brethren or something like that, right? Wow. I would I would use I would say these sentences that would just cause these eruptions. And uh the first like really bad beating was I think I was 11 because it was near September 11th. And he beat me with a belt. And it always pissed me off because it was my belt. Uh. And uh, yeah, so I was really angry for that, you know, about that. But you know, the messed up thing, James, is it only took me, to, it took me until this year to realize that I didn't deserve it. You know, I always wow. thought like I deserved it because I provoked them. I, I knew what to say. And my brother would always say that after I got beat. He'd be like, you think you can say that about Jesus? You're, you're, you're mental. And they would repeat that over and over until I thought I was mental. And I was like, okay. And uh, then they started taking me to shrinks as young as 12. And uh, they took me to John Hopkins University in, in uh, I think, Maryland. And <clears throat> I remember they talked, to, I talked to the shrink and then my parents went in and they closed the door and I heard the shrink say, have you guys considered changing your beliefs? Wow. And the next thing I remember is on the way home, my dad said, what a waste of money that was. So they took me to shrink after child psychologist, after child psychologist all over and throughout my teenage years. Um, and none of them would give them the answer that they wanted. They wanted like bipolar or, you know, um, something. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't get the diagnosis. The doctors wouldn't give them a diagnosis. And uh, they told me I was normal. And they eventually took me to Mayo Clinic. They lied to me, sent me to Mayo Clinic. And uh, they locked me up there for two and a half weeks in the psych ward where most of the other kids were there because they were suicidal. And I was shocked. I just coming from this church. I, my parents had lied about why I was going there. They'd said I was going there to get these spots on my back checked for cancer, which I knew was a lie. But I also asked my dad, I said I would go if he um, gave me $3,000, which he did. Um, That's it, after what? Well, yeah, I, I totally, totally blackmailed them. Or not blackmailed them, but but they, they were sure that this was going to fix me, taking me to Mayo, because Bruce Hale had, had okayed it. And they showed me the message that Bruce Hales was like, yes, I would do anything for my child, blah, blah, blah. So as soon as Bruce Hales said that it was okay, they took me to Mayo Clinic. They did every test on me there possible. They did IQ tests, brain scans, MRI tests. I did gave blood every single morning. You wake up and there's like seven doctors at the end of your bed. And... The day that I was uh, released, my parents were signing these papers and the head doctor takes me down the hallway and he's like, you're too young to kind of understand this right now, but you'll remember this. And he's like, we've done every test on you you can and there's nothing wrong with you. He's like, but you're in a stressful situation, so I'm putting you on a light dose of anti-anxiety medication. <laughs> and uh, that was that. You know, so that I, I didn't even tell my parents that because I knew how mad it would make them. But uh, it gave me, you know. Did it help? 
it made me a little more angry at them even actually you know mm -hmm. when i got home I, I was even more angry but i was also angry and and rebelling because i was raped at 13 by a guy in the church uh, um so he uh he bought me beer and got me drunk at, at uh, one of these sunday lunches and then he bought a porn mag right so we go to these, he, he says he has to show it to me in the woods near my house. And, uh, you know, then he tries to rape me and it's okay, man. Sorry. It's I know. Tough. Listen, you take your time and, and, and you can change the subject anytime you want, but no, okay. No, it's all right. I'll get through it. My, my brother uh, came out and he was yelling. He was looking for me because we had to go back to church. And so he stopped and I, you know, pulled up my pants. I ran out and uh, that fucked me up for a long time. You know, it was bad. And I never told anyone for a while, but I did tell my dad when I was, what is this, 18 after I'd been confined, you know, shut up that, you know, the term. Mm -hmm. And uh, they offered... My, they were very upset, you know, but they offered to send me to a brethren psychologist in Cleveland, Ohio. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. My flag was like, no. Um, and then at 15, um, a woman in the church, I'll, I'll name her because I named her in police report, uh, uh, Bonnie Bowie. Um, she was married to my first cousin. She convinced me to have sex with her when I was 15. And, uh, you know, it was consensual, but that messed me up too. You know, like I, I didn't know what to think about sex after that. Like I was just like, okay, do, do people just use each other for sex? I guess. So we had sex four times and the last time, you know, she starts crying and uh, she's like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm committing adultery. I have a, you know, a new baby at home and dude, James, I felt, more guilt than I can ever, ever explain. Like, I was like, I'm going to hell, I guess. So I may as well have fun, right? <sighs> Pardon me. But I was terrified too. Like, like I worked two offices down from her husband. Like, I was just like, fuck. Yeah, <sighs> I mean, and and we, I mean, we, we see it in the comments too. <clears throat> and, you know, this is one of the, this is one of those things uh, with, with the belt, and, and I just want to go back to that just for a moment because um, everything you're saying is so powerful. I don't even know where to begin. Um, but the, the the belt, the fact that it was your belt, there is a symbolic thing that would happen to you almost every time you put on that belt after that. You know, like it's like a reminder that it's your fault, even though it isn't. You know, yeah. like that is a very profound image that you put in all of our heads when you said that. Um, and as far as the your two um awful experiences the um when you were 13 and that man raped you and when you were 15 and that woman raped you now i know that there is a contextual difference between those two situations especially since when you're um when you're when you're you know when you're a young boy you know there was probably a moment there or two where you were like felt like the king of the world but mentally the long-term damage that that was done to you 
contributes, I would think, to the not knowing until a couple of years ago that it was even wrong, any of those things. That contributes to that. Is, is that how you feel? Absolutely. You know, it took like two years of therapy until that came out. And I was like, no, no, I provoked them, you know, and my therapist was like, what can a teenager ever say that deserves them to get thrown down the stairs? Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Nothing. So, okay. Um, you know, you're brave for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that, those kind of details. I, I'd like to try to skip ahead now, though, until between the ages of 15 and 18 when you left. What was those years like and how did you end up leaving? Um, so I became more and more rebellious, you know, um, and I would, I always liked to hang out with the, the other rebel kids, um, the other bad boys that you'd see at, at, at uh, these big church gatherings they called fellowship meetings. And so I got branded as a rebel and a bad kid when I was like really young teenager, probably 14 even. Um, and they took me to see Bruce Hales. Um, oh, I guess I should tell you the first time I met Bruce Hales. You saw him teenager. in person? Oh, really? yeah. I pulled an experiment on him. Do you want me to tell you about it? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, speaking about that porn mag, well, I did keep that. And I hid it in the, um, the air vent in my basement bedroom at my parents' house in Montreal. And my parents' bedroom was right above. And Bruce Hales was coming to Montreal. And this must have been around 2004. He was new to power. And he was going to come to my parents' house and take a nap before the big church gathering. And this was a huge deal. So I said to myself, that bed is directly above this porn mag. If he can sense sin, because my parents told me he can see right through people and see everything they've ever done. So I'm like, if he's that powerful, he won't be able to sleep because the sin will be right under the bed, right? That made sense like, to like my 14-year-old Like the princess and the pea. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he slept like a baby. You know, I heard him snoring there. And uh, then he came out and was all chipper and, and everything. And I'm like, man, that's that's crazy. Like he didn't he didn't even sense the porn mag. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that you would run an experiment like that because you know the 30 you're 32 now, right? Aren't you? Yeah. So the 32-year-old yeah. lane must be like, of course he didn't sense anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, but at the time you were you like, maybe he will, you know, like was yes. it that? I was he, scared. I was scared. Yeah. So I, I'm just trying to figure something out. Were you, were your parents fairly wealthy then? Because yes. I imagine Bruce Hales likes to sleep in nice places. You know. Yeah, my parents were my parents were on the upper high end. Okay. Yeah. And so they 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 either they they were higher ups at one of those what are they called UBT companies? Um, I'm pretty sure it would be now. Uh -huh. Yeah, they're pretty. I pretty big company in the states now um so okay so that was 2004 so when what was it like when you left and what were the circumstances circumstances surrounding that well that's interesting because it was pretty quick after i told them about the abuse um so they well there's the two stages of confinement so they first confined me 
And they, the, the reasons that they used was because I was in a brethren within the brethren. So that doesn't make sense. They said, basically, they were trying to say that I was part of a gang that was going to all leave and we were bad kids, right? And then they said, because I wasn't coming to church and because I was going to bars. And I was like, cool, thank you. I never want to come back. Bye now. Um, and they, but they kept visiting me and giving me priestly visits. And for the first bit, I would, I would like put a blanket over my TV and leave a Bible out, pretend I'd been reading it, you know? Um, and then I finally was like, no, I'm going to tell them. So I told them, I told my uncle, Johnny Fossey, I told Derek Cowie and Randy Cowie that I'd had sex, that Bonnie Bow had uh, convinced me to have sex there and like, and started touching me and everything. And, uh, um, they were shocked and they were like, okay, we're, we're going to look into this. And right after that, I told my dad and my dad was shocked too. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, and then they never talked to me about it ever again. And about a week or two later, I asked my dad and he said, she denied it. So there's nothing that they can ever do. There's nothing more to do about it, Lane. That was it. Wow. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, that's... <clears throat> and, and unfortunately, that seems to be the pattern with uh, kids and young people that... Um, have abuse allegations, uh, credible abuse allegations against elders in the church or older people in the church. Um, it feels like they, oftentimes they leave not too long after that. Um, they're either pushed away or they leave on their own accord because nothing uh, happens. Yeah, I was and, then... Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, sorry, I was then withdrawn from like not long after that, right? The official excommunication. And I was... All of a sudden, oh, when I'd been confined, my dad had allowed me to still work for his company. And I was in the office, right? And I would see people. I couldn't eat with anyone, of course. But when I was withdrawn from, my dad all of a sudden said, you can't come to the office anymore. We're going to bring all your stuff to your apartment. Because he'd actually got me an apartment for the first year, mm -hmm. which was nice of him. And uh, so... But he didn't actually give me any work to do. So literally, he just gave me a, a salary to sit in my apartment because now I was excommunicated. I was no longer allowed to go into the office. So I don't think that's legal. Um, and uh, then it, I was his out. company. Yeah. 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 Those are called no show jobs in the mafia. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, and I love all your references to Tony Soprano because my dad doesn't know, but I made him drive to the house of Tony Soprano once when we were in New Jersey. Yeah. Oh, and really? Get a picture in front of it. Yeah, because I was in the basement watching Tony Soprano. He had no idea. 
That's so um, so once I was kicked out, I was still trying to get in the military, but surprise, mm -hmm. surprise, it's difficult to get into the military when your high school diploma is given by a cult because the, yeah. the military guy just looked at it and he's like, where's your transcripts from the ministry well, of education? Let's, let's, let's go back a bit. So your education was a brethren school that was not officially accredited by the province, correct? Exactly. And you didn't know that even though they didn't teach you any science and stuff, right? Like they, I knew it know. was bad. I had yeah. a private teacher, thank goodness. And I'm still friends with him. Brian Warner, he's 85 years old and oh, wow. fit as a fiddle. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, so I got some science and some education through him, but yeah, they, they just leave out science. Like just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And I remember asking Derek Cowie when it was close to graduation, because he was a trustee at the school. And I said, Derek, um, will my high school diploma be recognized? Because I was wanting, I knew I was wanting to go into the military. And he said, why does that matter? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you have a job lined up with your father's business, no? And I was like, yeah, but I'm just wondering if it's going to be recognized. And that was it. That was the answer I got. Wow. Why? Why? Okay. So that was then, in, so, in two, so you left in 2006. Is that right? 2008. 2008. 2008. Okay. I want to just jump a bit before that because um, I received this and you guys are probably not going to be able to read it because the writing's so small, but let me see if I can do it for you. Hold on one second. Um, okay. Now, this is a memo uh, from a Nebraska church locality and it keeps on disappearing off my screen for some reason, which is really weird. We can see it. I can see it. Yeah, I can't... I, Anyway, I can't. Uh, okay. It's an urgent memo. It's dated January 26, 2005 to Canadian households from the North American representation to government commission. Basically, it's just a brethren locality in Nebraska faxing this to Canadian localities. And the subject is same gender marriage bill. And again, this is from January 26, 2005. Preventing the passage of this bill is absolutely critical. Reliable persons in government have predicted the following dire consequences that the bill has passed. Churches who do not perform gay marriages could lose their charitable status. Church organizations are already in court for refusing to rent space to perform gay marriages. Schools will be required to teach that the homosexual lifestyle is acceptable. Gay persons will flood Canada from all over the world with disastrous social results. <laughs> Gays will not get married. Marriage will lose its value to all classes of people. Casual relationships <laughs> will prevail. Children will be born out of wedlock with severe consequences to the welfare system, as has already happened in the Netherlands and Scandinavian countries. Adoption of children by gay couples. That is just a standalone sentence, as if we're all supposed to gasp and clutch our pearls. Yeah. Um, there will eventually be no barriers to underage marriage, incestual relationships, or polygamy. Kind of hilarious, because there used to be a lot of cousin marriages inside the Brethren. Yep. Um, conscientious public officials are already losing their jobs for refusing to support homosexual relationships. Persecution of Christians will increase. There is nothing more intolerant than the politics of tolerance. I have no idea what that means. Will the uh, will the brethren still be able to live in Canada? And right at the bottom in bold, it says urgent exercise and crying to God is needed. As in the book of Esther, Satan is seeking to destroy the testimony. Now, the interesting thing about that, other than the fact that it's completely batshit and from uh, medieval times, basically, is that 
uh, I believe it was then following year or maybe that year, um, the brethren in Canada basically corralled uh, like hundreds and hundreds of their members to send petition uh, one sheet a one sheet petition to local MPs uh, or or whoever their MPs were, and um, sort of flood them with uh, with requests that they do not pass gay marriage. But more interesting than that is that the the reason why it was a fraudulent petition is because you're and you witnessed this firsthand, I believe, that like individuals would send dozens, maybe even a hundred of of these petition pages to their MPs and just would sign different names. Is that right? Yes. Um, can can you expand uh, on that story a, because that is fucking crazy. <laughs> absolutely. Like, so I was an unknowing witness. I must have been, um, if this was in 2006, I would have been 16 years old. Um, I remember the first time um, was, it was at my uncle Gord McKinnon's uh, business. And it was, I believe it was on the weekend. And they had tables lined up and, and printers going, printing off these letters people signing them. And then I was, I was tasked with stuffing the letter into the envelope. Then they'd be put stampage, like putting stamps on was another table. Um, and that was the letter side. And I saw people put different signatures, everyone different signatures, oh, this one. Okay. And then they would pass the letter. Someone would be signing and then they'd pass the letters back and forth. Right. So that no one was signing the same one over and over and over. Um, and then at my father's business, Another weekend, I believe, they were setting up phone booths and they were calling MPs all across Canada. Uh, my grandma was doing it, changing her voice, different, using different names. Um, and I wanted to. I asked if I could. And it was like, no, you can't. It was too sensitive. And I was too much of a rebel. Um, they also had, I think, daily vans that would leave from Montreal. We'd pack full of brethren members. And I, I was allowed to go on these. And we would drive to Ottawa and we would sit in parliament across from the conservatives, like in the bleachers and be like, clap, clap. You know, we love you. Um, I remember my grandpa, my grandma telling me that one of the liberal MPs was a pedophile and he came to give me a fist pump uh, in the back chambers. And I like, I freaked out. I was like, ah! you know, and he's like, he looks at me, he's like, what's wrong? And I think about it now. And I'm like, that was just absolute bullshit. You know what I mean? Like they just made that up. Like they, they you know what I mean? It's just crap. Yeah. The pedophile was probably the guy driving the van to Ottawa, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. So this is a very interesting and bizarre way to grow up because I, I, I've heard stories as well about robo, like people calling, not just about the gay marriage stuff, but just like calling to like, um, and, and this wasn't you, this was someone else, but like, calling during election time just in like in 2018 to um basically acting as a wing of the conservative party to call to sort of get the vote out but they weren't technically part of the operation like they were flying under the radar of uh, elections canada and doing what probably would amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of you know telemarketing whatever you want to call it um for free and then people would sign non-disclosure agreements so that they wouldn't be able to like talk about it afterwards, which is also ridiculous because you can't sign an NDA to protect something that's illegal. But do you have any like broader understanding of any like of the connecting tissue between the conservative party and the brethren? Or is it really just as far as you know, 
um, more about the social issues and how the brethren were trying to stop certain things from happening. I, I just, I watched the efforts as a kid, you know, and I was just watching like, but I was helping because that was the movement. So for the church to be like, we don't get involved in politics publicly is hilarious, you know, because yeah. we were literally going out at night, renting trucks with big arms to put up conservative posters all over Montreal in an organized effort, you yeah. know? And um, just a friendly reminder of you know, of the lack of uh, um, intermingling of uh, brethren in politics. This is Prime Minister Stephen Harper swearing his uh, oath on a Plymouth Brethren Bible. This is the front row in 2011 when Stephen Harper won again. And that front row features Chuck Truon, Roy Taylor, Brad Mitchell, Ron Barnes, and Ralph Mooney, all higher ups in the brethren. And, uh, you know, I no media in this country seems interested in this stuff, but now we're at least hearing it from somebody who was basically there in these boiler room operations to try to make sure that gay people can't be happy, right? Because Jesus might get mad or Bruce Hales might get mad, you know? Um, I'm, I'm a, yeah, go ahead. I'm ashamed of, of the views that they would push. Like, literally, it was hatred of homosexuality, like hatred. Like they, I remember kids joking after church in Montreal about getting tanks and driving over the pride parade and killing them all. And there was adults with an earring shot and everyone was laughing, you know? And I think yeah. back then it makes me sick, makes me want to vomit, but that's what they would teach that it was an evil choice. And my, my dad and brother um, got, in big trouble they went to a human rights tribunal in uh in quebec i believe because uh they uh my brother tried to terrorize a homosexual couple in montreal it was in their 60s you know really and he, yeah he had to he had to write an apology and they've had to pay a fine and it's public record you know um and it's it was sad. My, I didn't know what was happening when I was a kid. That was hushed up. I knew my brother had gotten in trouble. And then years later, I saw the documents, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, so, OK, um, <laughs> there's so much to unpack with you, but I, I, I want to just circle back again and talk about what it was like meeting this guy. Like, what was he like? You met him twice, you said? Yes. So then when I was such, I was such a such a bad boy that they sent me sorry, hold on hold on i should say for the people that are listening and not watching i just what well, he, he met um sorry lane had met bruce hales leader of the plymouth brethren cult uh twice once he slept in the bedroom upstairs and was not able to sense the sin in the form of the pornography magazine that lane had put into the uh the event um but uh what was he like like was it i mean it's okay to say that he was charismatic and stuff like i'm, I'm just kind of curious what he was like in your eyes when you met him disappoint bit disappointing to me because okay so like when we got to sydney australia i was allowed to go to sydney australia because that's what happens to the kids that get bad you get called over to go to australia so i went with my dad and mom my older brother and we went for an actual meeting at bruce hale's business and he go he has his own little private elevator he goes up in and this he goes in with my mom and dad and they come out about 15 20 minutes my mom is just bawling you know like she just saw jesus or something and she's like it's your turn you know now i'm like holy crap like that doesn't look fun you know so i'm pretty nervous going in there and he pulls me in and it's just me and him in this little office right and i know all the bad shit that i've done that well it's a sin 
And um, so he starts talking to me and he's like, I've heard you have a problem with novels. And in my head, I'm like, novels? That's what he thinks I'm I'm into. Like, no, I'm into boobs and and titties <laughs> and music and movies and the military. Why does he think I'm into novels? He's like, you have a problem with novels. And then he's like, the devil get you. And he and he grabs the coffee mug and he's like, as soon as you touch the TV remote, you know, in his, his Australian accent. Yeah. And I was like, I, I honestly was like, I, I'm not really sure what the hell he's talking about. I'm not into novels or TV remotes. Um <laughs> So what is, that was that was kind of weird. And then at the end of that, he says, you understand me? And I just kind of nodded. And he's like, okay, opens his wallet, pulls out $300 uh, Australian money and gives it to me and says, buy something for your sisters. Well, I actually spent that money on a purse in the airport for a girl I had a crush on that worked at the movie theater. Oh, yeah, wow. which we were not supposed to go to. So I yeah. really was like, you know, yeah. Um, Good job. Good job. Didn't know. <laughs> how long did you last with the girl? Uh, she was probably weirded out by the fact that I just brought this $300 purse to someone yeah, I a bought purse. a ticket off a couple times, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wasn't good at dating at 14 no. in the movie no. theaters. No, no, no. But um, I, I got a funny story for you because this yeah, one sure. blows my mind and it's about sin, okay. right? And how ridiculous they think about this. So I remember as a kid, my mom was having a discussion. She'd been talking to someone in the UK. And this was quite serious. Like, this is one, not a joke. They were having to pay to have their sewer ripped up and put a new sewer line in that goes from their house to the main city sewer in the street. Now, why did they have to do that? Because before, their pipe would touch the neighbor's pipe. The two houses would join and then go to the city. So just break that down in your mind. Poo comes out of bum of brethren member. Poo comes out of bum of wardly person. Poo touches, Satan pops up, right? If the poo goes to the city and then this guy goes to the city and then touches, no sin. <laughs> my, my daughter should be here because she loves talking about poop. <laughs> that was too funny. Well, also, guys don't usually like it when their pipe touches another pipe. Right, like there's yeah. a little bit, but that's another thing about being anti-gay. You know, like you never know. Um, they spent money to 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 repair that issue. I guess they would call it. Multiple is... members, multiple members had to dig up their driveways and put in new pipes because poo is... touchy sin. No poo touchy, no sin. That is fucking crazy. You know, poo is just a sin. Period. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big fan. <laughs> um, yeah, like okay, so. So when you went to the military, how did you remedy the situation with the with the um, fake brethren school situation? What what happened there? I had to write a GED, so basically a high school equivalency diploma. Okay. Right? okay. So that took me a couple months, and then the military took a couple months because you know there was it's not like the Americans like it you know takes time. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got I honestly I. I I followed my dream like ever since I was like 12 and I watched a movie. I think it was tears of the sun with Bruce Willis on a little laptop in my basement with one ear yeah. plug in because I had to hear if they were coming, you know, um, I fell in love. I watched that movie like probably 50 times. And I was like, I want to be a soldier. Like I got to go to the military. And I did. And I've been in 
uh, a little over 10 years, I think now. And I had a blast, man. Like I got some amazing adventures and by far some amazing people. Definitely. They became my family. What were you like? What was your rank and what was your, you know, I don't know. So I don't know how to ask the question. Were you a corporal? Were you like tech guy? I don't know. Like, I, yeah. I, can you tell? I, try, I tried to just for the record. I know almost nothing about the military. I did try to enter the military once as a poet. <laughs> the Canadian government in around 2004, 2005, were allowing poets for the first time to join the military. I think That's since amazing. World War One. Um, but they wouldn't let me go because uh, even though I, you had to still have to do boot camp, which I was like, oh fuck, okay. And I was like, fuck, I can do it, you know. But then they were like, your eyes are terrible, so you can't go. And I was like, damn it. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I didn't want to go to boot camp. But um, but what what uh, what were you in the military? So um, I joined as a NAVCOM, Naval Communicator. So I worked in the Navy for five years. I did my training out in a Squamalt. And then I was uh, posted on HMCS Halifax and got to play a lot of war games with NATO all over the North Atlantic. I got to sail through a hurricane. Um, yeah, that's, that's scary. Um, but it was fun. Like, it was really fun. Like, I, I just, like, got adapted to the military. It became my family. The friends were, like, amazing, right? Like, it was this, this mm. new family to me. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. And then I was like, I need to change. And I really wanted to be in the infantry before, but they hadn't been hiring back then. So uh, I switched from the Navy to the infantry and eventually became a paratrooper. Oh, wow. um, and, yeah, like... Uh, loved it. Absolutely the highlight of my career. And then I sadly, I got in a parachuting accident and that kind of slowed my career down right to a stop. Right. Yeah. And then also I was like, you know, I need to, I need to deal with my past and get some mental, mental health help. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where I, I am now. And I, and then Cheryl inspired me to come on here. Yeah. She's so brave. eh? You know, I, but dude, listen, don't let anyone ever take away anything from you because what you went through when you were a kid, what you, um, what you went through as far as your family dynamic, as far as that asshole when you were 13, as far as that lady when you were 15, um, as far, as far as having to deal with, uh, with the mom who was really like, like crying because she thought she saw Bruce, she looked at, at Bruce Hales, like he was Jesus. Like those are all pretty traumatic things. And then the bravery it takes to go into the military and then the bravery it takes to become a, an infantry member. And then the bravery it takes to battle this mental health game that, that you, you are embarking on right now. Dude, if no one's told you this, like you know, you're, you're a very courageous person. And I think that you should hold yourself, hold your head up high, you know, and I'm glad Cheryl was able to inspire you. She's inspired me. She's inspired countless people. Um, you know, and, and you know, you're, you're part of this puzzle now. Like, you know, you're part of this, like, I'm not gonna use the word family. Cause that's what cults say, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you're part of this like group of people who are kind of creating this collage of courage, um, in order to try to, make or hold accountable an organization that is just a disease. Like it is a, it is an abusive system of control and corruption. And, and I think you coming forward and talking about this stuff is, is, is a great example of courage. So you should, you should be feel proud about yourself. I think so. Honestly. Thank you. Um, 
Is there any, um, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing this a little bit more often. Is there any message? Because I, I, I would like to make this person famous. Bruce Hales, leader of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, AKA the crazy cult. Uh, you know, he is the present day deity. He is the Tony Soprano of, you know, of the Plymouth Brethren who receives envelopes full of cash. If there was some sort of message that you could send to this guy, what would you say to him? Oh, I would say, dear Brucey, if you want to harass ex-members and follow them and do, pull those kind of games, I'm your antichrist. I'll be your Huckleberry. I was just going to say. <laughs> um, and the only other message I would say would be to ex-members and to the, the people that are in that listen to these, because I know they are. Mm -hmm. If you know about abuse, if you know about these crimes, don't be a coward. Don't be a coward. Tell the police. And I have a quote to help you along from the, the leader in 1961. JT Jr. said, it's right to report fraud or crime to the authorities. So there you go. If you need your, your, your stuff to back you up, there it is. Yep. I'm sure he was just window dressing at the time, but nonetheless, you know, that man. <clears throat> Listen, um, I thank you very much for joining us. I, I think what I liked about this interview was that um, it was emotional but it was, there was laughing in it too. I, I like that because it shows that I think you're well on your way to feeling normal again. And Thank you. please keep me posted on how, on how your journey goes with the whole mental health fight, okay? I will, James. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Lane. I appreciate you coming on, buddy. Bye. I'll see you. Lane Admiral. Wow, that was up and down. That was, that was crazy. But um, I'm so happy for him. Man, military after experiencing that and then um, and then trying to put your life together and trying to piece your life back together. Dude, the guy's, the guy's a hero, like a legit hero. And I didn't thank him for his service. So, Lane, if you're still listening, thank you for your service, buddy. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to take a break this weekend. Uh, it's been a long week for various reasons. and uh, But we'll be back next week. I hope I have some rappers on or something or some comedians or some shit because, uh, you know, um, not that I don't enjoy doing what I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I, you know, I feel the value in, in the things that I'm doing. Um, but, uh, well, there's no, buts. you know, I'm just going to keep going. If it kills me, it kills me. Um, I love you guys. Thank you so much for joining me and we'll see you again on black ball. Black Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. 
Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.